I went outside to water the backyard and it just hit me so hard. I got extremely dizzy. My chest felt like I had been smoking my entire life. My body was hurting. I was breaking out into a sweat, but I'm a very stubborn person and I was in denial. And I'm like, this is not, this is not happening. And I came in and Lewis just looked at me and he was like, what's going on with you? And I just broke down in tears and I went, this isn't good. This is really bad. I'm Danny Vallant and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. On Dirty Linen, we love to catch up with people from all around the world. Not that I've done it that much, but I definitely plan to. Uh, So I'm incredibly excited to have Justin Burke, a pastry chef from North Carolina, come to chat to me on the podcast. I saw something from Justin on Twitter that made me want to reach out. And it was his description of his post-COVID taste buds as colorblind. I just found that so striking and alarming and scary. I think um, in Australia we are very, our world is very much changed because of coronavirus, but we, we don't have as many cases as in the US and it's probably fair to say that a lot of people haven't met anyone or no one they know has actually had the virus. I think the situation's very different in the US and uh, Justin's certainly well placed to talk about it. Justin, thank you so much for coming to have a chat to Dirty Linen. Yeah, thank you. So, Put us a little bit in the picture. What are things like for you in North Carolina at the moment? Um, well, I mean, North Carolina and, and pretty much all the states, it's just this, it's just dreadful. I mean, to be completely honest, you know, we, you know, the, the for the most part, or like, I like to believe this, you know, we're trying to convince our government officials that, coronavirus is a very serious matter that needs immediate, you know, attention and intervention. Um, it's, you know, it's like a little too late, but there's still opportunity to, to fix it. Um, and being in the restaurant and hospitality industry, you know, we, you know, small businesses have just completely suffered, you know, iconic restaurants, that have been in business for 20 plus years are closing permanently. Um, we're just seeing our way of life completely wrecked. Um, and we're, we're coping with it as best as we can, but there's just so much back and forth. Reopen the states, close the states down, open businesses 50%, now go down to 25% open. And so many, we've been opening up in phases, usually in three phases, and very many states have been able to even get past phase two. You know, in North Carolina, we just recently pushed phase two another five weeks. So now we're looking at September to hopefully go into phase three. And the cases just keep rising and the deaths keep rising. And having been someone who had COVID, is recovering from COVID, it is such a, it's so weird. It's, I can't even begin to describe the emotional and mental impact that this virus has on people. I, I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you're saying. It's so, <laughs> Sorry, it's it, so it's, heavy. Well, it is so heavy. I mean, it's massive. Like it's, it's, this has changed the world. It's upended 
everything. I, I was, I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot, you know, like we're dealing with it as well, but it's, it's different. And I think the added mental load of the citizens of a country trying to convince the government that stuff needed to be done and that it needed to be taken seriously and that we needed to act according to science. I think that added load that it seems like you've got in the US would be, I, I just can't even imagine the weight of that. Like to be in the to be in it, and then to be trying to convince the authorities to help you through it. Well, it's it's so disturbing too because you know we are, you know, our presidential election is of this year, so it's almost like the virus has become this political tool, and it's just so sad because it feels like they are sacrificing their citizens human life to 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 sway votes to become you know to main to stay for Trump to stay as president and it's just it's very it's just a major letdown um especially when we work so hard uh just to be good people and just to make ends meet especially in the restaurant industry and we are you know we're out there ensuring that folks can eat still um, when their grocery stores are closed or, you know, our farmers can't even produce because farmers markets are closed. It's just the system that is crumbling and it is a very, very sad thing to watch. Yeah. I mean, the, the words major letdown seem just so mild compared to the intensity and the weight of the feelings that would be commensurate with the situation. It's like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, <laughs> we all talk. And I think that we're so exhausted from, from it personally, from knowing family and friends who have, who have, um, who have COVID or who've lost lives because of COVID. And I think that we've just exhausted and exerted so much, mental and emotional capacity <laughs> that we're at the point where it we just simply say this sucks what do we do yeah uh, well I saw something else you put on Twitter which was like you made it your recipe testing a pie and then you ate the pie before you photographed it because that's just where the situation had got to it's just <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a kind of a, that's a common, (laughs) it's common with me. I get so overzealous with what I make and, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to taste this part of this and I can still photograph it and you won't know that I took a bite, but (laughs) (laughs) sometimes I get a little overboard and it's funny actually when that happened, um, with my taste, the only thing I can taste is sugar, which is odd for me. Even as a pastry chef, I've never had a sweet tooth. Usually my stuff is very, the sugar is very low in it. It's usually a lot more savory and herbaceous, solid balance. Yeah. Now I just want everything sweet. And I don't think it's because my my appetite wants it. I think it's my palate and my emotional brain just saying, you remember what this tastes like and you're getting it. Uh, 
let's track back and let's talk about when you had COVID. I mean, is, was it what was it like? Was is it like everyone had it? I mean, do you know where you got it, or was it just like it was everywhere? Like, yeah, I can I can tell you everything about it. So, I um, I have a I have a ni- uh, twenty month actually. He's twenty months today. Hey, a twenty month old son. Yeah, yeah, he's so cute. Um, and I co-parent with my ex-husband and, um, we both have partners. So it's this fun co-parenting, very warm, loving family. And, uh, David, who is my ex-husband co-parent, his partner, Chris is a flight attendant and he was on a flight and for unavoidable circumstances, we believe that is where he, he got it from, um, and, you know, it's a job that you can't avoid, you know, just like there are so many people who have jobs that can't avoid going and serving the public and what they do. So it was one of those unavoidable circumstances and he contracted it and then it just, it spread like a wildfire. Um, Jasper got it. Who's my son. Oh, wow. And I had picked him up cause it was my weekend with him and David and Chris were supposed to go on a trip. Um, that trip got canceled because after I called David to let him know that Jasper had spiked a really high, high fever and it didn't seem anything related to teething or just normal toddler ear infection fever. And he started to cry. these really large tears. And I just, I saw him and I'm like, what is wrong with our son? He is behaving so differently. And he started to pull at his hair and hit, like showing signs that his head hurt. Um, and he wasn't eating much. So David and I, you know, we are really good with communication and determining what to do. And we make sure we never make a decision without the other. And he was like, go get him tested. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go get him tested. And... The day I got Jasper tested was the day that David came down with a fever. So now we had three people with these fevers and you just know, like your gut tells you this is what it is. So Jasper had the test, but it's so frustrating because, and and David and Chris got tested, but what is frustrating here, and I don't know if it's like this elsewhere our labs, our medical labs are so overwhelmed with tests that rather than taking a couple of days, it's taking between one and a half to two weeks to get results. Oh, that's terrible. So it's almost defeats the purpose of, it just defeats the purpose of protection if, if it takes that long. So we started to quarantine, everyone quarantined. And then my partner, Lewis, got really sick and so I quarantined him and took care of him and, and took care of Jasper. And I was the last one standing, so I assumed I was asymptomatic. I'm like, I just must not have the symptoms. And after Lewis started feeling better, um, and I had put Jasper down to bed on a Thursday night, this was July 1st, I went outside to water the backyard, and it just... It just hit me so hard. I got extremely dizzy. My chest felt like I had been smoking my entire life. That's the only way I can describe that feeling. Um, I didn't. My my body was hurting. I was breaking out into a sweat. But 
I'm a very stubborn person and I was in denial and I'm like, this is not, this is not happening. Um, and I came in and Lewis just looked at me and he was like, what's going on with you? And I just broke down in tears and I went, this isn't good. This is really bad. And that's the kind of the last thing I remember because then I slept. It was pretty, I slept, I say I was unconscious, but it was in a state of, I didn't know my surroundings and I didn't know. I was just completely delirious. Um, and I slept for three to four days and the hospitals here are, are overrun. So, you know, we play, we play the game of, is this severe enough to go into the hospital? What is severe? What warrants doctor intervention? Will this get better? Will it get worse? Um, you know, they, because of my age marked me as mild but I had all of the symptoms but one to warrant someone from going into the hospital. And that was just having blue lips. I didn't have blue lips. I could still uh, uh, kind of breathe. Um, I could still kind of breathe. Oh, I can still kind sounds, of breathe. Sounds fine. And right. what about Jasper? Like how sick did he get? Because that is terrifying. It's terrifying to think of a child being sick and then the parent just being completely knocked out. And uh, yes. I'm, yeah. I'm forever grateful for Lewis because I don't know what I would have done if I, if it was just me and Jasper. Um, Jasper bounced back very quickly. Um, Great. Thank God. You know, just a couple of days and then, you know, he was running around and, you know, he had a, a lingering cough and sneezes, but full recovery. Everyone, my ex-husband, David, he, I would say he was the second worst him and I kind of took a longer time to get better. Um, but I I had every symptom. I had weird symptoms. Um, my skin became very dry and cracked and started to bleed. Um, oh. I had to shave my beard because I couldn't stop scratching my face and my hair. I had to, I had to have Lewis just like give me a rough buzz cut because I was scratching so much hair was falling out and then I was just having these scabs on my, my scalp. Um, blood clots is really common with COVID and I, my ears were bleeding. I had like blood clots coming from my ear essentially. Oh, um, it, yeah. It, I mean, so bad. It was gruesome. <laughs> it's, just, it's the sickest I have ever been. And the no taste and no smell it, that, is it still stays. I have that symptom. I get very fatigued quickly still, um, which is frustrating because I've been a very active, very on the go person. Uh, and now after like walking to get coffee or just standing, I have to sit down cause I get short of breath and I feel like I've just ran a marathon, which does not help with standing in the kitchen for a very long time. So that coupled with not tasting and not smelling, it's those are the frustrations of recovering from COVID is they're saying right now 13% of those who have had COVID are symptom free in two months. That um, is not very many. That's not very many. So I was just going to ask you to dive more into the no taste, no smell thing because apart from that sort of uh, being a signal that you haven't fully recovered as as a chef and I mean that that I mean I'm not a chef I've just an I'm an eater (laughs) you know that I just find that an absolutely devastating prospect 
It is. I will not lie. I have I have spent many times crying um, out of just frustration and, and sadness. But, you know, when I... I was the executive pastry chef for two restaurants here in North Carolina, Kindred and Hello Sailor. And while I worked there for four years, that training that I received from the owners, they pushed me to, to grow my palate and to identify all sorts of flavors in one bite. Um, and I valued that training. It was very important to me and it helped my craft as a pastry chef think further about desserts than just sugar, flour, eggs. What else can you add to it to complement and and rethink, retrain my brain to think what spices were and, and how acid works and salt is always important and you know the different flavors and, and textures. It, it was a beautiful thing that I got to experience. And having been, I'm self-taught, this being a pastry chef and recipe developer is a second, is a career change for me. So, you know, being self-taught, I was always able to take these chef-driven ideas and translate them for home cooks and home bakers in, in simple steps and words for them to understand not having that ability that that skill anymore terrifies me because i don't i don't know who i am if i can't do that it's a very i feel very lost um and i'm trying to bake and get in the kitchen and doing it off of memory, which is a whole whole other muscle that I've never uh, used before. That, that, you know, taste muscle of memory. Like what? Yeah. It's just so weird. Um, and it's <laughs> so frustrating because, you know, Lewis jokes with me because I can sit in the ki- in the living room and he's baking and you know he's the timer goes off and he's like do you think that's done and I just smell and I'm like no it's not done yet because it doesn't smell done and I I don't know how to tell other people what that is I just know it and now I don't have that Ugh. so that is challenging and I hope it's not permanent and that's what I was going to say earlier that they don't even know what permanent damage COVID will have on folks. It's a new thing. And when you talk about being able to, that you can perceive sweetness right now, I, I can sort of imagine that as this, like you're reaching for something, like 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 reaching out trying to grasp onto something that could possibly take you back to the way that you could sense things before. Is that is that what it feels like? Absolutely. When... So it has gotten to the point with, with sugar, some raw vegetables and fruits I can sort of taste because of the natural sugar. The moment they're cooked, they all taste the same and it just tastes bland. I 
constantly have a metallic taste in my mouth. It just tastes metal and gross <laughs> is the only way I can describe it. And I have tried everything to, to get that to go away. It's really sad. Yeah, it's really, it's just really devastating and it's, and it's really scary. Um, and you're, yeah, you're young and you're fit. And as you say, like, this is who you are, you know, you're the guy, this is your expertise. This is the senses that you rely on to communicate, to, to work. Uh, this is, this is your, your craft. Um, yeah. And, to, and I think when you're dealing with something that's so destabilizing, but you're also exhausted and depleted in other ways, um, I guess you're physically depleted. Like it's very draining to be alive in the world right now, full stop. So um, it must be, I mean, are you able to draw on some reserves of, of positivity and direction to try to sort of climb out of this or think of a way through this? Or is that just is that just a, a silly question? <laughs> no, I no, it's not a silly question. I think it's a very good question and something that, you know, someone like myself who can slip into depression easily, I I need to be reminded those those things and then to, to to find the silver lining or however folks look at it. And for me, you know, I've been in the pro I left the restaurant two years ago to be a stay-at-home dad with Jasper and transitioned my career to food writing and recipe development. And, you know, in all of this, I'm also trying to, to write my first cookbook. So it's, I have to make a living and I can't wallow in this sadness and my sorrow. So I, I continue to push myself and I continue to just look at it as, okay, you have had COVID. These are the, the, the side effects of it. This could be permanent damage. How are you going to adapt? It's not just happening to you. It's happening to so many other people. And, you know, I know the platform that I have and that I, I've been fortunate enough to, to be given. So if no one else is talking about it, then you should talk about it and you should just be transparent and walk people through this journey. And if that means you start writing recipes for folks with compromised, you know, palates and senses for them to feel comfortable back in the kitchen, that is what you're going to do. I'm being, I'm pushing myself to be open to, to adapting to what could be permanent and how do I help others who have the same permanent symptoms. I'm also, talking to a lot of chefs and restaurateurs and hospitality folks who have had COVID and are having similar, you know, issues with constant fatigue or loss of senses. And it's a support group. How do we help each other? How do we keep our businesses going? How do we make sure that the food that people are used to us making drinks for that we're used, people are used to us making are still the same and not, you know, bland and diluted because our taste buds have failed us. Um, oh, <laughs> wow. There's so much, there's just so much that, you know, if you just look at it on a surface level, yeah, I don't have taste or smell. 
But when you dig deeper, what are the what's this ripple effect? What does it have on you know self, just your dignity, your respect for yourself, your respect for your craft? Can you even make food for your family, for yourself? And if it is your profession, how do you keep going and not just trickle and fall down this spiral of depression and throw your hands up and just say, I give up? So that pushes me and that motivates me to find the positivity, to give other people hope. And, you know, I will always say it sucks, but I'm fortunate enough to still be alive. So... I have to look at it that way. Yeah, wow. Justin, can you tell us about a dessert or a pastry that really tells us who you are, like where you're at, where you were at? <laughs> it's like where I'm at now. <laughs> I'm like, just white sugar. No. Yeah. <laughs> you talked about those savory notes and, you know, um, the, the lightness. Uh, um, yeah, just, just, just give us one of your faves. Absolutely. So, um, Gosh, I always get this question and I always feel like I fail, but, uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) no. So one of my favorite desserts growing up was key lime pie, but it was kind of very just tooth achingly sweet. And there was just so much, it either had way too much like acid or it was so much artificial acid like the pre-bottled lime juice that it just hurt like i don't know that like jaw just pain um so when i was at the restaurants you know i was i was always known for taking american comfort desserts and either lost recipes that people didn't hear of for 50 years or you know common household grandma desserts and giving them a breath of fresh air to just modern day living. And that would be the key lime pie that I made that had uh, cumin, a cumin graham cracker crust. And that warmed. Yeah. It just kind of warms. It warms and balances all that acid. And I cut the, a lot of the sugar out and and just with the lime and that cumin and the graham cracker kind of just marry and I would fold like creme fraiche in there just to to give it a different form of acid and tang so it wasn't all key lime uh, and then you know always texture so I always try to find some way to to toast you know, some, some nut, I think for that one, if I remember correctly, I used macadamia nuts, uh, just to kind of give it more of that earthy note with the cumin. So that would probably be the best way to describe me as a dessert or what I'm known for, but I'm all over the place. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a smoke and mirrors pastry chef. It is I've always said, what you see is what you get. If I'm going to serve you a piece of pie, it is going to be a very familiar looking piece of pie, but the flavors are going to be bold. And you're going to say that was a really good piece of pie. (laughs) Um, 
because I hate going to places where it's like foam and smoke and so much crumble. You're like, what actually am I eating right now? <laughs> right. Give me a dessert. <laughs> yeah. It's comforting. Dessert is to comfort you. Definitely. Is it, when you're talking about texture, that make, makes me want to ask you what, how you're feeling about texture right now. Like, cause I guess texture without taste is so sort of abstract, just like gravel in your mouth or something. But I mean, yeah. Where are you at with texture? You know, I've never been the person who had a, a texture issue while eating. I I pretty much eat everything, <laughs> uh, except for dairy because I have an allergy. But but yeah, but without even the taste, like there was something. What did I have? Whatever it was, I cannot remember. But it was definitely more of the like mushy texture. And without having taste of knowing what that was, my mind just, I kind of got, kind of turned to my stomach. I was like, what is, what is this? Like my brain doesn't know what I'm eating. Um, other than that, I haven't had too much of an issue with, with texture, which is, I guess I should be very thankful for. Well, I don't know. It's hard to find gratitude. I mean, you're doing an amazing job of finding things to be grateful for, I reckon, in the circumstances. Um, Justin, in, in 2018, you wrote an incredible article that was published in Eater about uh, the narrow definition of masculinity, for I guess especially as it was reflected uh, at you as a gay man in restaurant kitchens and the harassment that you experienced. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that has impacted you? Sure. Um, you know, uh, like I said, this becoming a pastry chef was a career change for me. Prior to that, I worked in civil rights and in nonprofits. And one of the things I, I pride myself of being part of was being part of the team that helped secure same-sex marriage in Massachusetts, which was the first state to legalize same-sex marriage in the country. Wow. And that's massive. Yeah. <laughs> it was an amazing time. That's so great. It was an amazing time. Wow. Um, and that had a triple, I mean, it just, it, this ripple effect of other states followed and, you know, and then it finally became, you know, nationally recognized. Um, and I, you know, was very happy that it was in Massachusetts where I lived. I lived in Boston. This is great. My liberal bubble, which truly meant I lived in a liberal bubble because when I transitioned my career, cause I had always wanted to be a pastry chef. I didn't think that I had to hide who I was. It just did not seem like a thing I had to do because being gay was where I lived in Boston it, and among people, it just wasn't a topic. Like people didn't ask what's it like being gay or are you gay? It was just, that's Justin. No big deal. Just a human. Um, so when I went to the restaurants and my, I worked in restaurants in college and graduate school, but they were nothing of importance. When I started working in them full time, I was working, I was doing pop-ups. So I didn't have, I didn't work in run restaurant. I was all over. I think I worked in over like 125 restaurants in one year. Um, 
and I saw the best personalities and I saw the worst personalities and it was it was so shocking to me the abuse that I endured and witnessed and it wasn't just because I was gay I I saw abuse towards women I saw abuse towards you know people of color any anyone that was not perceived as a heterosexual white male you were at the mercy of these toxic leaders. And it was it was emotional, mental, certainly there were some times of physical, but over time with abuse and trauma, you I just got quiet and I hid. And I didn't tell my husband, I didn't tell my friends. Because everyone, when I made this transition in my career, some had doubts that I would succeed. Um, And so I I felt stupid (laughs) that I made a mistake. I felt trapped. And a lot of things came about that. I lost my fervor for life. I was a very sad person. I picked up a massive drinking addiction. I would stay out late, but had to be up so early because of pastry. So I was drinking all night, getting a few hours of sleep, waking up and chugging coffee or Red Bull um, and Gatorade because I was hungover. And then my anxiety, my anxiety was so bad that my panic attacks flared up and I lost a lot of weight. And then I started taking Ativan just to try to sleep. And it was bad. Like, 19-year-old Justin and 36-year-old Justin now, we're two completely different people because of that experience and, and trauma. And so when I pitched this idea to Eater and they came back to me and said, would you be willing? Because what I pitched to them was a bigger, was a much more global topic of toxic uh, abuse in the restaurants and they wanted to me just to say like talk about your story and be as open and raw as possible and that's what I did and I did not think I did not think anything of it you know and I just thought okay I'm gonna write this some people are gonna you know acknowledge it and we'll move on um no like all of a sudden like all of my DMs and social media and emails and like all these people who were experiencing the same trauma in past and present reached out to me and asked, how did you get out of it? And how do I get out of it? Which is a lot of responsibility. (laughs) And I, it just made me realize that there's such a bigger issue here than just this circumstance in this scenario. And there is no help for LGBTQ um, industry folks. There's very little representation. It is not talked about. And similar to what's happening at Bon Appetit and that whole mess of injustice and and racism and everything else, it, it just were either you know, queer folks are either used 
as props or as as marketing for Pride Month in June, and then we're kind of hidden for the rest of the 11 months, or we're just stereotyped and being in pastry, or, you know, uh, we have an event going, you're gay, so you can do the event planning. You know, it's... <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it is just wretched. So... I just talk about it now and that's be kind of it's become my my blending of of my previous career and my current career of of civil rights and and restaurant hospitality of like this can be better there can be inclusion and equality and everyone can have these same opportunities of success and their talents can be showcased in restaurants in the media they can write the recipes and talk about their families and talk about their partners and their children and what you know their lives are and why they cook. And we can have queer food and, and tell you what queer food is and what the queer food movement is and should not be afraid to say who we are um, publicly and in our jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And just be, and it's funny because, you know, you, you spoke about when you're in bus, in Boston in your bubble and you were just Justin. So it's a funny, it's like you've got to be so much, there's got to be so much of gay Justin to come back around to just be Justin again. Is that, is that a. There's, yeah, <laughs> there, no, it's true because when I moved to North Carolina, you know, I had staff, they were like, so you're gay and you're married and you're trying to have a kid, tell me more. Like it was, it was as if I was an exotic, I was just exotic to them. And I was so confused of why we were talking. Like, I'm, I'm like, of course I'm married. It's, it's national. It's like nationally recognized. It's law. <laughs> I can. And yes, I can have a child. There are several ways I can have a child. It just, it was just very interesting because like you said, in Boston, that wasn't a topic. It was just acceptance in that bubble, I should say. Not everywhere in Boston or Massachusetts is there acceptance. But in my bubble, that was not, it was not odd. And I unfortunately became very comfortable with that. And I think I did a disservice to myself of not keeping myself educated on the inequalities that were still occurring. I think I became complacent. Yeah, I, I... It's a funny one, isn't it? Because it's like it shouldn't just be – you shouldn't be carrying that load. Like you should just be able to have a life and, you know, the life that you want. But I guess, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. It's, it makes me think about this stuff with, with Bon Appetit too where it's the weight that's put on those um, people of colour to represent, you know, an entire culture um, to – so it's like it, – I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a really tricky one to find – uh, and it's so not, I mean, I, I think too, it's not fair. It's not fair to put all that pressure on the, on, on these folks who, you know, finally said enough is enough. Stop. This is not right. It is unfair for everyone else to then say, well, now you are the spokesperson for that. And unfortunately you can never fail again. Like there's so much pressure and there's so many eyes watching you because now they're waiting for you to make a mistake so that they can call you out on it. And it's not fair. It's not, 
respectful because <laughs> of course we're going to make mistakes. Well, it's it, it's not fair and it is an extra weight, but it also takes time and it's like it takes time and energy and if you're not spending that time, I don't know, like perf- you know, like digging into the next amazing pastry, then whereas someone who's um not marginalized just has the time just to be just to just to do their do their craft, to do their thing, just to to be it, rather than to be explaining it all the time. That's another form of discrimination exactly. because you don't you have less time to devote to whatever it is that you want to be fantastic at. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just a lot of burdens, and it's and it's <laughs> yeah, and they they think that you know whatever marginalized community that you come from. And if you're very outspoken and and proud of being from that community, then they, they just hold you to that. Like you have to represent all of it and its authenticity. There is no deviation from, you know, well, what has that cuisine meant for your life and how has it changed and ebb and flowed and how have you seen, you know, interpretation from other cultures that you might also be a part of (laughs) and, or races or just other communities. Um, it, it's very troubling sometimes. Yeah. And it's also like, as if being gay or being a gay chef or being a gay pastry chef is just one thing. And like, you can now represent it, it all. (laughs) It's just like, it's just, it's crazy. Um, Justin, you know, one of my hopes out of the COVID era is that it's an opportunity to rebuild and to create change and everything's upended. So can't we just make things the way we want them now? I know that we're all still in the thick of it and it's really hard to see how we're coming out the other side. But do you have any of that hope or ambition for being able to create structural change as um because surely one day this pandemic is going to be behind us. Yeah, I I have tremendous hope. I think, you know, here it it's almost like I I look at twenty twenty and I think, okay, we've have we have a pandemic, this this horrible virus, and we, in my perspective for the first time as a country, we're talking about the injustices that the system has created and how, you know, we are being open for healthy, uncomfortable conversations of this cannot be the same way. We have to change the structure of society. So those two things in itself are very large and 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 just just wreaking havoc in a good and negative way across the board because it brings you know especially with changing the system of of inclusion and equality it's it is bringing out the the folks who didn't think they had the the power and the voice and the strength to fight for for improvement, but it's also bringing out the really ugly, um, scary side of this country where you're just I'm just shocked at what comes out of people's mouths. I'm just like I cannot believe you think that way, but 
I think that it is it is so dynamic of it's just it's just so dynamic that there is no way it's impossible for us to go back to quote unquote normal life and it is we're forced to change we are forced to change especially here and i think that it's going to continue to be many ups and downs some very great celebrations and some very sad moments but the sense of of community the sense of unity among the the citizens in the in the communities that have had very little representation and voices are growing and becoming stronger and that to me is something very beautiful and to me something very encouraging especially being a father with a 20 month old that is the world i want him to have is that repair and new hope and never have to think or go back to what life used to be because it truly wasn't great we just became very complacent yeah great i'm i mean that's so powerful it's such a it's a it's a call to action but it's also a reason to stay hopeful so yeah i love it Justin, I listened to you chat to Kat Kinsman on um, food, from Food and Wine. It was a it was a fantastic chat. I certainly recommend it to everybody. But there was one thing that you spoke about that I think people in Australia don't know enough about, and we need to know about it right now. Can you please explain poke cakes? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I was like, what What is this going to be? I was. Uh, this is, this is like the best question. Um, so, well, I'm sure y'all know Americans are super lazy and tend to, uh, be gluttonous. We just have issues and (laughs) that's a whole different conversation, but a poke cake in its original form, I call it church lady food it's um do y'all call it potlucks where like people bring food like they bring their own dish to a big gathering yeah okay we call it bring a plate bring a plate i love that we know about it it's like literal (laughs) um (laughs) yeah (laughs) i feel like americans just have to make things a little bit harder um so at churches you know we would have church potlucks where typically it was uh you know, the older uh, members of the church would bring the food. Um, And one of the things that I remember so much growing up were called poke cakes, which is simply a vanilla cake or a chocolate cake baked in a rectangular pan. And then you take the back of a wooden spoon and poke a bunch of holes throughout the cake. And you can either pour... Uh, condensed sweetened milk all over it or jello before it's set uh, refrigerate it so that moisture soaks it all uh. <laughs> and then it gets some kind of like whip topping wow i as a kid loved it as an adult looking at its true form it's kind of gross to think about so 
I, when I worked at Hello Sailor, one of the two restaurants that I, I worked at in North Carolina, and Hello Sailor is very beachy, fun, kind of staycation, lakefront getaway with uh, like a Southern California vibe. So we wanted to be a little bit more kitschy, more, you know, tongue in cheek. So when Joe Kindred, the owner, chef owner, asked me to to think of something that I would have eaten as a kid in California, because I grew up, I was born and raised in California. I was like, oh, well, poke cake, but I don't, I've never seen a restaurant put a poke cake on the menu. I don't know if I can do this, but let me, let me try. And so we came up with still a rectangular cake, but, and we poked holes in it, but instead of jello or condensed milk, we piped the holes with different fillings, either, you know, buttercreams with crushed nuts or, you know, a pineapple coconut compote, something to, to give texture and then frosting or unsweetened whipped cream and then more, you know, whatever theme we were going with. So it was like, we would take an iconic dessert and see how we can turn it into a poke cake, like a German chocolate cake, uh, red velvet cake we did for Valentine's day. Uh, we have a thing called a hummingbird cake, which is similar to a carrot cake, but with pineapple. Um, and we just turned this into poke cakes and it took off. People loved it. <laughs> and it was like, I was so happy. Um, so yeah, it sounds, um, they sound like perfect lockdown food to experiment with. So <clears throat> my challenge to everybody listening to this podcast in Australia is to make it happen. Let's do the Australian version of a poke cake for, um, yeah, the COVID times. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that would be Just, awesome. And yes. and I want to see them. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to show amazing. them to you. Um, Justin, it's been so amazing to chat to you. Uh, I really could just keep going because there is yeah there's so much to talk about um thank you so much for sharing your story being so open about what you're going through right now and um yeah what what's happened to you along your journey uh yeah just i'm really really thrilled to have you as part of the conversation on dirty linen thank you yeah thank you so much for having me this has been great i appreciate it so much This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>